sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. My name is Brian. And hey, guys, it's Murdoch. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is our chance to sit down with you and uh, talk about rumor and innuendo and things you've heard about your favorite bands and artists and songs. And if you have a specific thing you've heard that you want to discuss or have us discuss, uh, we are the story guys at gmail.com is your direct line for comments and questions. Like Chris. Chris writes the show to say this. Guys, I especially like the episodes of your show where lawsuits and copyrights are involved. <laughs> Which, you're a nerd, Chris, but we appreciate it. That's awesome. I um, love you, Chris. Thanks for listening to our show. There, there's a lot of lawsuits and copyrights to talk about. Now, here's what he says next. He says, with that in mind, I think you guys should dig into the story of CCR. Especially that Ooh. time that John Fogarty got sued for sounding like himself. Signed, wow. Chris. Yeah. Oh, what a great, great letter. I, okay, I, I got to be honest, too. I, I don't know if I've shared this with you. This is not the first time someone's written the show about the Fogarty and the CCR and the legal battles. Uh, it, and my, my first reaction was like, did I know that there was a lot of legal turmoil around that band? Oh, yeah, dude. And, and the thing is, it's like when you look at the scope of work, like what a what a huge scope of work with so many hits. In a short and, amount of time. Yeah, yeah. And then they've been floating around you know, hitting towns as Clearwater Revisited. So that's so funny that you say that because I was like, did they have legal trouble? And then I was like, we used to work in radio and have to give tickets away to the casino where people were going to see Creedence Clearwater Revisited. Yeah, not Fogarty. Yeah, not Fogarty. And I don't think it takes the host of a podcast about rock rumors to realize that when you're a touring act with an altered band name, something happened at a courthouse. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's so, great. Yeah. I mean, that seems like a good place to start, right? And it's it's actually not as interesting as it sounds. Like basically CCR is Fogarty and his brother Tom and then the rhythm yeah. section, Stu and Doug. And So is there a brother brother versus brother scenario here? So uh, there is kind of, right? Kind of, but not really. We'll talk about Tom a little bit. Tom's the older brother. And there is a little weird Tom thing at the end that remind me if I can't remember if I've actually have it in the notes. So remind me if I don't get to it to talk about it, because there is an interesting Tom thing. But Tom doesn't really factor real heavily when you read about CCR. You really you really hear about Fogarty and Stu and Doug when you hear about the friction. And the, the band's story is really interesting for a lot of reasons. But you've already pointed this out. I find the most interesting thing about the band how short their run was. Like, I don't think I realized that they really didn't have more than, like, five years of, like, real prime CCR. Yeah, they're like Guns N' Roses. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they were technically together for, like, I mean, they knew each other uh, when they were younger, and they, they played music on and off for, like, 12 years. But, like, the CCR period that we think about, that like, all those hits come out of. And let me say this, that I... A couple years ago, three, four, I mean, a couple years ago, we were still in a pandemic. So longer than a couple years ago, I went to a music festival and Fogarty was playing before the headliner and I was going just to see the headliner. And I, but I, in the parking lot, my buddy and I got there and on the way in, we could hear the Fogarty set ending. And 
I had this thing happen all the way through the parking lot where I was like, oh my God, this song. Oh my God, this song. Like, there are so many CCR hits. Like, even if you don't think you know CCR, you know CCR. Like, they're everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And and people have covered those songs um, to death. I mean, they're, oh. they're, part of a, they're part of a big, you know... Big deal. My man, we're going to talk about the covers. Well, we're going to talk about how badly they got screwed with all the covers that that have happened. So the the whole revisited thing, let's do that first. The whole revisited thing happens more than two decades after they break up. So Stu and Doug move next door to each other in 1995, and they've like not been doing anything, and they casually start things up again. Um, They never plan to go live. And like play out, but they're just like, you know, they used to tour and hang out and they're like, hey, we live like on the same street. And they eventually see the opportunity to play CCR songs in concert again. So they, I mean, they call Fogarty and he says no. <laughs> so they get this clever take on the name. They become Cleden's Clearwater Revisited. And then oh. Fogarty sues them, saying the name is too similar to Creedence Clearwater Revival. But I think that begs the question of how did we get to a point where Fogarty would rather sue than even entertain playing with his old bandmates, right? I mean, that's bad blood, dude. Well, that's the easy answer. The easy answer is that John's a jerk, right? And and there's plenty of evidence. If if we wanted to go in that direction and say John Fogarty's an ass, we could use this quote as Exhibit A. It's from 1997, and he says, I was alone when I made CCR music. I was alone when I made the arrangements. I was alone when I added background vocals, guitars, and other stuff. I was alone when I produced and mixed the albums. The other guys showed up only for rehearsals and on the days we made the actual recordings. That's a quote, an undisputed quote from 1997 from John Fogarty. So yeah, you've got he said, ad- some, he said some prickly things, and, and he has sort of a reputation Clearly, he's 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 prickly. But here's what we're going to do today. I don't know why I'm defending a rock star who people respect as a songwriter and this stuff. I, I don't know why I feel the need to 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 defend his reputation. But I found by the end of this a little bit of a feeling of loyalty to John after hearing what he went through. So I don't think it excuses his behavior. But this story is nutso. And thank you, Chris, for prodding on this and for other people who have written the show, because honestly, this was an, we've had this request for the last several years. Like they keep, people keep going, Hey, why has there not been a CCR episode yet? So we're going to do it. And we're going to talk about this adult man who is basically saying in this quote from 1997, that the musical partnership that he's been in with his two junior high buddies and his older brother, since he was barely a teenager was never a partnership. I mean, he said it. He said, I did all this by myself. These guys just showed up and did the easy part, which is crazy. And and dismissive, in term, in, in my opinion. I, I, but. I, I don't, I mean, I'm assuming that John is not on the Christmas card list for Stu and Doug anymore, but I don't know. Right. But, yeah. you know, we don't make a lot of five-minute episodes of the show, so that's why I'm saying let's not just call the case closed right now and say he's a jerk. <laughs> let's... Is John cranky? I mean, that's sort of the word you used. Yes. Does he have a reason to be cranky? That's where I want to go. And the answer to that question is hell yes. Oh, I want to hear about the crankiness. Well, bring us into the rumor 
the innuendo, everything that we want to know about why John Fogarty is such a, a jerk, apparently. Uh, well, first, give me a little on CCR. Give me give me the Murdoch take on what CCR means to you. Oh, um, it, it is, it's one of those records that my sister, she left Cosmos Factory behind. And so it was a, I discovered that music from there. And, and rock radio, when I was a kid, that was kind of there with the Eagles and everything else. Like it was in Fleetwood Mac, like it was just really heavy in rotation. Then it's, that's always, those songs are tattooed onto my brain. I feel like if we get to a point in pop culture where there's like repackaging of podcasts, you know how they used to do that with songs all the time. We'll actually talk about that because that's a thing Fogarty hated was when his songs got repackaged. Um, I feel like there could be a whole repackaging or special edition of the episodes about the records or the bands that your sister left behind when she left the house. Like we, we've yeah. touched on this some recently, right? Rumors, this one, uh, yeah, we talked we about ZZ top in the past. We haven't talked about goose Creek symphony. Maybe we'll do that for one whole episode. One oh, day. Okay. Let me mark that down. Goose Creek symphony <laughs> coming right up. Okay. <laughs> Where we want to spend the bulk of our time is with someone who is not technically in the band at all, but someone who is able to gain an extreme amount of undue influence over the careers of everyone in this story. We're going to leave John, Tom, Stu, and Doug on the side for a moment, and we're going to turn our attention to this other guy, and his name is Saul Zaints. Okay, you up for a game? Yes. Okay. Try to fill in this blank. And this is not a trick question. I want you. I want you to actually play here without ccr there is no blank protest rock oh that's a good one you know as much as my friend our mutual friend and comedian who was just on the night show run on hersberg used to really rail against the movie forrest gump when we had a podcast together and talk about how like totally boomer that soundtrack is that soundtrack did a lot of good for people who were 10 when it came out right you know, it's like getting a Time Life collection. It really it really is. And I, I remember opening that soundtrack and just like absorbing all of it because it was an easy place to see it all, like in a compendium. And Fortunate Son, I was I remember playing that song over and over. Now that you say that, I remember playing it and being like, I can't believe this song's old. Like it just felt so live, right? And I was used to hearing these songs from 20 years ago at that point where they sounded like they were from 20 years ago. And that song just sounded so urgent. Um, and of course, then you grow up and you learn the historical perspective and what it's about and everything. But that's a great one. Okay, do it again. Without CCR, there is no blank. Credence Clearwater Revisited. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of goes without saying, but sure, sure. Okay, that's now, you, you can make a good case on a lot of statements, right? You could put a lot of things in that blank and they would have validity. But I'm going to a very specific and concrete and verifiable statement. Here you go, you ready? Without CCR... There is no movie called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> now, I, I know you might be feeling a little whiplash. I mentioned my old movie podcast with, with our buddy Ron on. Are we suddenly on that movie podcast? No, we're not. But seriously, another question in our quiz game while we are talking about films. Let's see if you, you do any better with this one. Do you know what these movies have in common? One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest from 1975. Amadeus from 1984, and The English Patient from 1996. I was going to say they all won Best Picture, but that's yep, irrelevant. that's correct. 
Right. Okay. You, d- that's, you that's, nailed that's it. That's relevant. Okay. That's the answer. I that's relevant. There's another thing they all have in common. They were all produced by Saul Zaints. No way. Saul Zaints so, has three Oscars. What did he do with CCR? Was oh, he their manager? Oh, buddy, we're going to get there. Almost all of his projects were adaptations. This is this guy's thing. He would see something that he liked, he would buy it, and he would adapt it. And the first thing that he bought in this in this illustrious film career was a stage adaptation of One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest that he saw in New York. And then he took it to Hollywood, and he made it happen. I just want to say again, three Oscars for all of you in the back. Three. Another wow. interesting side note that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. In the 70s, he bought the film, stage, and merch rights to most of J.R.R. Tolkien's work in the 70s. <laughs> or at least he bought what counts, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. This, of course, leads to a lot of complications and lawsuits over the years, but ultimately a ton of money. In short, yeah. just to give you an idea of the scope of this guy's impact on movie making, at the 69th Academy Awards, not only did his film English Patient, which we just talked about, win Best Director and Best Picture, he also accepted the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award for Lifetime Achievement. This is so weird. I can't wait to hear what this guy has to do with <laughs> Born on the Fire. In short, everything. Everything. So... Being a producer takes a little capital. It can be expensive, right? I mean, I don't know if you know, I actually literally looked up what does it mean to be a producer on a movie, right? Because I wanted to, like, I think I know, but I wanted to look. And it basically means you're like, you're getting it done, man. You're doing whatever it takes to get the thing funded. So you're a fundraiser, right? You're a sales guy. But you're also making a bunch of calls on who you hire. And it's, it's like you're the CEO of the movie, sort of. Oh, interesting. So it's a business job. The guy at the top of the business is the guy writing the checks. So this is what he's doing. So where do you get the money to just buy the rights to a play adaptation of a book by Ken Kesey? Well, Saul got it from the music industry. Now, a real interesting backstory on Saul. He started in the jazz world. He managed tours for Stan Getz and Duke Ellington. So this dude's old school. I can't believe this is a guy that is associated with CCR. Dude, we're, this we're, is so amazing. We're going there, man. In 95, or I'm sorry, in 55, 1955, yeah. he ends up taking a job at a place that you have heard of called Fantasy Records. Yeah. Now, Fantasy Records was associated mostly with jazz early on. In, in fact, the CCR boys... Later in the story, when they find out about Fantasy Records, the reason they even know what it is is from a Vince Guaraldi song, which had nothing to do with Peanuts. <laughs> it was a song Weird. called Cast Your Fate to the Wind. kind of recognize this no i don't but i can recognize his you know his yeah, fingertips on yeah things, Intr- but... also an interesting guy i got down a rabbit hole during the research for this and i was like we should do a vince garaldi episode like probably not though he did die really young which is really interesting he died at like i say really young but like i think he had a heart attack at like 50 or something so to think about all of the vince garaldi we didn't get is pretty crazy but anyway 
So Vince Guaraldi's on Fantasy Records, right? And he sort of helps make a name for Fantasy Records through jazz. And that's how, that's literally how the guys know in CCR when they hear about Fantasy Records, this is what they know about. They know about that. It, you know about the guy from Charlie Brown's cartoons. That's I mean, great. Vince Guaraldi wins a Grammy for it in 63. So, like, we know, generationally, you and I know Vince Guaraldi for the Christmas stuff, but he's a jazz pop guy way before that. And He was, he was, he was label mates with Dave Brubeck. People need to understand yes, that that's uh-huh. a thing. That, you're right. I, that, that was neglectful of me not to mention that. It ends up getting him, that song ends up getting him the Peanuts job. Like, that's how big that is. Huge cultural impact. But back to CCR. Wow. Wow. In 64, (laughs) they're playing under the name the Blue Velvets. And they do, in fact, meet. We just sort of skimmed over this. But they go to junior high together. Okay? So that's how they know each other. So they've known each other forever. They sign with Fantasy, who promptly changed their name to the Gollywogs. The Gollywogs, yeah. I knew that. I heard of that before. In 66, John and Doug... Both get drafted, so they're gone for a little bit. And while wow. they're gone, our boy Saul shows up. Oh, and Saul, Saul's been working at Fantasy, but Saul buys Fantasy in 1967. <laughs> Saul's great. And when the other CCR boys return, Saul offers them a new contract. And here's how he softens it. He's like, "Listen, we'll get a new contract." And you guys can come up with a different name because the Gollywog sucks and you and I both know it. So for reasons that aren't entirely clear, probably just not lawyering up enough, CCR signs like basically the boilerplate fantasy contract. And I don't know what you know. I actually do know what you know about the record industry in the 60s. I don't know what everybody else knows about the record industry in the 60s, but boilerplate contracts were not really in favor of the artist. Full of legal stuff that make this not good for CCR. But the most egregious thing has to do with publishing. Mm. Now, do you want to walk us through a little bit? I'm putting you on the spot. But just the, the basic idea of what publishing means for people who may not know. Yeah, I mean, if, if you own own the publishing of it, you, you basically get paid for the... any t- Like any time that it's almost um, repurposed or... Pu- or played or, covered. or or covered or, or in any way to, in use in in use in a uh, advertisement or, or in any other way like you're you're basically like a shareholder of that piece of music. Now, so that's a great way to put it. Shareholder is a great way to put it. Now think about this as a young artist. So you and I we're we're, we're playing in your basement. You and I and we write a great little song. Born and- on the bayou. <laughs> It does not sound like that, but yes. So so let's just just follow this through. So my motivation, especially if I'm young, my motivation is I want people to hear me or hear my music or hear me and Murdoch's music, right? And so I'm not thinking past this idea of people hearing this song I wrote. Now, I'm not saying this is conjecture, but I think what happened to a lot of artists is they're thinking very simply, Right. They're, they're not thinking about the complexities of a business that they're entering into. And so when you sign one of these contracts, you're like, cool, you're going to do all this for me. You're going to give me all this money up front. You're going to help me do this. And you're going to get how many people to hear my song? And I'm going to be on the same label as Dave Brubeck and the guy that did Cast Your Fate to the Wind? Like, heck yeah, man, sign me up. 
But Sign me up. What you don't realize is that you could, you might, if you're lucky, write a song like Proud Mary. And, and Proud Mary has been covered over 500 times. Oh my gosh. And it's like yesterday. Guess who gets all of the money every time somebody covers Proud Mary? Who? Fantasy Records. <laughs> and guess <laughs> who owns Fantasy Records? Saul. And guess what Saul did with his first batch of money that he got from all of that cash? He gave it to gave it to CCR? Nope. He bought the rights to a little play called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> oh my god, he used he used the pro- he, That's all this, this literally money literally how he bought that the rights to that and turned it into an oscar winning film i want to know did they play nice together him with the band what do you think i I don't know this could go either way murdoch what do you think if the guy has made so much money that he's just randomly starting a different career (laughs) i'm thinking does he not does he not care about other people, maybe? Here's John's take on it years later. Quote, we were the only artists that mattered on the label. We were selling 99.9% of the company's records. You can hear how grumpy he is. We had signed a contract thinking we were all in it equally. This is what you're asking. Hey, I thought we were all in this together, right? We're just going to split the pie five ways. I thought we would share to a great degree in the company's success, but that is not what happened. Fantasy own the songs, and they're supposed to pay me as the songwriter, but I've had to fight to get royalties from 1980 and every year after that. Basically, to get paid, I've had to sue them. So, to Chris's question, what's the story on all the lawsuits? Depends on who you ask. You ask John, he's like, listen, I'm just trying to get paid. Now, there's a lot more complexity to this story. A couple years in, and CCR is only getting bigger. Now, I read this sort of just matter-of-factly written in several places where they're just thought of once the Beatles break up as literally the biggest band in the world. <laughs> yeah. They played at Woodstock, right? So they did play at Woodstock? That's Smoke, smoke and Good said at Woodstock, too. Yeah, but can you know what time they played? Uh, 2 a.m.? Yeah, like 3 a.m. And they played after the Grateful Dead. And they yes. were like really pissed off about it and made a bunch of comments to the press about how pissed off they were. And I think people sort of forget they played at Woodstock. So I'm glad they, you brought that up. That's right. They they made a stink about Oh yeah. They were pissed about it. So this is right around the time of Woodstock. And they are the biggest band in the world. And they they go to Salt and they're like, Oh, you have got to give us a different recording contract. Like this is garbage. I'm not kidding when I say that the nineteen sixty nine recording contract that CCR signs with Fantasy Records is literally the stuff of college business classes. In the show notes, you can find one of my main sources for what we're about to dive into, and that is an academic research paper about this document. Oh my gosh, about their contract. Yeah, so I'm going to read from some of it here. All right, this is from this document. After comparing notes with bands on other labels, CCR realized that their 10.5% contractual royalty was a mere pittance, While Zance would not raise their royalty rate, he had a plan. The contract would no longer be with Credence Clearwater Revival. It would be with a Bahamian company 
owned by Creedence Clearwater Revival, but not subject to U.S. taxes. Oh. This way, Zantz told them, they would receive 35% more than they had before, which made their royalty rate actually more like 13%. He does some new math. This is a new math, guys. That is new math. (laughs) And he's like, it would actually escalate to 15%, and most of their successful contemporaries were earning about 15%. So, thus, if we make a corporate entity, Creedence Clearwater Revival becomes King David Distributors Limited, a Bahamian corporation. And that's literally what they do. That sounds reasonable. (laughs) It does not. (laughs) Now, I just want to pause and let everybody breathe in the insanity of this. Like first, we'll start a dry cleaner company. Yeah, right. Like I'm surprised. I'm surprised there's not CCR meth floating around. I, I I think this helps us understand what kind of guy Saul's answer really was. Like you were joking earlier. Like I mean, he just shared this with CCR, right? It's like, dude, listen to that speech that I basically just paraphrased for you, where he's like, no, 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 listen. So you <laughs> here's a few more highlights from this academic paper. And by the way, written by a guy named Hank Bordowitz. After doing the math one discovers that the contract called for the band to record, (laughs) you're going to lose your mind, 120 masters plus the 10 additional masters each year of the contract called for in section 1.2 for a grand total of 180 masters owed to fantasy during the term of the contract. Good Lord. Like, I just want everyone to know that a master would be a song. So, they signed a contract to write 180 songs for Fantasy Records. Now, let's think about the average the average album and how many songs you would have on the average album. 11, 12. Yeah. Dozen, so, a, ba- a dozen. Baker's dozen as, as many. Like, since we've already done new math, let's do easy math. And let's say you do 10. That's ten. 18 albums. Right. That's like asking like a professional football player to play for 18 years. Like bands don't make 18 records. Should there be a failure to perform on the part of King? Because that's their, that's, it's not Credence we're worried about anymore. It's, it's this King David Industries or whatever. If there would be a failure to perform under this agreement, and should pay, failure to perform not be corrected to the satisfaction of the group, the fantasy group, in addition to all other rights and remedies available to it, they then have the absolute right in its sole discretion to extend the then current year and or term of this agreement until such failure to perform it is corrected. I don't know if you heard that, but basically you're not getting out of the contract is what that says. Ever. Yeah. If the band breaks up, this becomes a real issue and it leads to what Fogarty will go on to call, and I honestly don't think this is that much hyperbole, his quote-unquote indentured servitude to fantasy. Yeah, I get that. The band does break up, and he ends up taking on the work that wasn't delivered by CCR into his own solo contract. For some reason, and I'm not sure why, fantasy releases the other two guys, probably because he's the real, I mean, you heard him say in that 1997 quote, he was doing all the work, and they must know that. But this is a quote from friend of the show, Joel Selvin. Uh, well, it's a quote he makes to Joel Selvin. Because Joel Selvin, remember, is part of this scene. He came out of this scene yeah. in California. Right, right, yeah. And so in an interview with Joel, he says at one point, quote, I owed so much product, I felt like I was chained in a dungeon. Yikes. 
Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you today by Pair, Pair Networks. If you have a business, you need a website. What's the best way to get one of those up and running? Well, choose a website hosting company that makes it really easy. P-A-I-R, Pair. Pair Networks does just that. They have over 20 years of experience managing the entire digital ecosystem for thousands of online businesses, and not just in America, all over the world, right? So Pair makes it easy for you. It's a do-it-yourself website building tool. It's got features. It includes drag-and-drop page design, and they've guaranteed if you need a support technician, they're ready to help you whenever, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right now, when you sign up with Pair Networks, you're going to receive one free month of web hosting. So you can see for yourself how easy it is to build your website for free. Pair.com slash free to get your first month of website hosting, and you can use the code QUICKSTART. That's Pair.com slash free, promo code QUICKSTART to get started today. In 75, Geffen buys Fogarty out of his service to fantasy, but only in North America. Everything is still in play in businesses that concern the other parts of the world. Fogarty tries to deliver some albums, but they're subpar. The new label, there's actually one of them that he makes and turns into the new label, and they're like, no, we're not going to release this. In fact, they feel so bad for him, and the product apparently sucks so hard, that the new label asks him to take some time off. They're like, listen, man, why don't you just, like, we love you. We want you to come back. We want to help you. But, like, you got to just get out of here for a while. So, if you were part of the biggest band in the world and you were forced to take some time off, seems like a good time to spend some of that money you've been tax dodging, right? Yeah. So, now we're going to go back to that academic article from from Hank Bordowitz. When Fogarty's attorney gets to the bank in the Bahamas to get some of this money, the door to the bank is chained. (laughs) A look in the window reveals nothing but a few trash cans and shredders. All the money had disappeared. Oh my gosh. That bank that they put $6 million in in the early 70s yeah. Was Castle Bank and Trust. Maybe you've heard of it. It's gotten very famous, or maybe I should say infamous. Lots of celebrities like that bank for the same reason that Saul did. Let me name a few of them. Very reputable people. Tony Curtis? Uh, Hugh yeah. Hefner? <laughs> yeah. The family behind the Hyatt Hotels? Also, a lot of guys in a very specific line of work liked to use that. Specific bank. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Mob guys. Mob guys love Castle Bank and Trust. Now, we won't spend tons of time down this rabbit hole, considering that it isn't entirely pertinent to the larger story. But Gosh, let me, she lost all the money. Let, let me tell you this. In the 70s, the IRS starts to investigate this place, and they get a photograph of the client list. And so they start to investigate individuals. I had to, I had to dig for the rest of the story. Because like everything I was reading was just like, they put it in this bank of the Bahamas and it disappeared. And I was like, I need to know more. And this is what I found out. So they're, they're investigating people on this list that gets out into the open. And then suddenly, it's all deemed that the list was secured illegally and the investigations have to stop. The DOJ quits investigating. <laughs> that seems fishy. Why do you think that suddenly an obvious hotbed of impropriety is set free? 
Just someone wants John Fogarty's money. Oh, no, no, oh, no, wait. no. No, three letters. C-I-A. Wall Street Journal reporter, reporter Jim Drinkall made it pretty apparent that the CIA had been using Castle Bank and Trust as a front to fund covert operations. Oh, jeez. <laughs> What is what is this? How did how so, did we get how did we get to the CIA doing? Oh, this weird. guy John Fogarty can't catch a break. Do you understand why? Like I'm sort of on his side now. Like I'd be grumpy too. Oh yeah, screwed out of all this money in the weirdest way. I got swindled by Saul, who told me to do this really fishy thing in the Bahamas. I trust him. The money disappears, and when we're on the verge of prosecuting the people that ran off with my six million bucks, which like now that's way more than six million dollars, right? It's probably closer to like twenty. When I'm on the verge of getting some justice, it gets shut down because the CIA's playing dirty, and they don't want that to be exposed. Yeah, man, I'd be pretty mad too. Wow, does he ever come after the CIA? Well, they can't really come after the CIA, but the result of this for them is that the band starts suing everybody else. <laughs> so, listen, again, Chris is like, I heard there were a lot of lawsuits around the CCR. Yeah, uh-huh, there are. Um, imagine the court costs for 10 years of lawsuits. In the meantime, Fogarty does something really nuts. But I gotta say, this movie's got some swagger. He tells fantasy. Remember how, remember how he said that he kept having to sue him after 1980. Right, to get his money. Yeah, to get his money. So he tells Fantasy that they can keep the royalties that they owe him. But give me the North American rights to my music. So this sounds like good news and maybe the end of all the troubles. But that 1969 contract that they're talking about in college would continue to haunt them. One thing Fogarty had fought for in that contract was the right to basically say no to their music getting added to compilations. So this used to drive him nuts. And you may or may not remember this, depending on your age, but like there was this trend of these record labels that owned all these different acts putting out these little cheap records that would have one CCR track or one, you know, they'd have a bunch of different people. It'd all be like garbage, but then there'd be like one good Fogarty song or whatever on there. And so he thought that really watered down who they were as a band, right? It's a classic artist thing. It's like, oh, don't, you know, you're just turning me into a commercial thing to sell vinyl instead of actually like putting it in the right context, et cetera, et cetera. So he hated that. But so he gets that in the, in the new contract in 69. He gets that taken out of the old contract. But attached to this was a tape royalty, and this had to do with how much they'd get when people bought cassettes versus vinyl. Well, hmm. the 80s hit, and all of a sudden, it's not just cassettes and vinyls. There's something called the compact disc that enters the picture, and their royalty take on the, on the cassettes and the vinyl is nosediving because there's new media. The rest of the band wants to renegotiate, because the royalty is, royalties is where their money is coming from. But Fogarty doesn't want to. But in the contract, there's a three-quarters majority. 
Wow. So <laughs> because that's all attached in the same spot, best I understand it, because that's all attached to like the same claws, they basically, Doug and Stu, go and recruit Tom, and once they have Tom, they have three-quarters majority in the band. So he, Fogarty loses power over the entire catalog. Gosh, this is so crazy. So I point this out to make it a little more clear why there's now friction with these guys and this when, when the idea of playing crops up all this time later. And God. this frustration that keeps Fogarty from playing CCR music publicly, it lasts for a long time. He refuses yep. to touch that catalog. You know, he would go out on the road in the 80s, yep. and he would not yep. touch CCR. Yes, I remember that. It was like, a th- you know, it was... It was one of those things where it's you're going to see that act that's not going to play the songs you want them to play. And it's because fantasy was getting paid too, right? They would still make money. So this brings us all the way to what may be the most famous of Fogarty's legal entanglements. And the core question that we got from Chris, did Fogarty really get sued for sounding like Fogarty? And <laughs> just when you thought the whole thing couldn't suck more for the guy or get more bizarre, the answer is yes. So... Fogarty makes this triumphant return to recording music. In 85, he releases a record, technically his third on his own, and it's called Centerfield. He actually, I didn't know this, he plays all the instruments on it. Yep. And it's released on Warner Brothers because Warner Brothers basically bought the imprint, the Asylum imprint that he'd been on. And this record goes on to be double platinum. And it, it becomes subsumed. This is how I know that this was this record was a big deal. It's subsumed into pop culture enough that even my wife knows the title track well enough to make me laugh by singing it whenever baseball comes up in conversation. Yes, right. Yeah, it like has. it's right. that it's that big. Put me in, coach. Um. So this record, the, the old man is down. The old man down the road. That's oh, song buddy, is too buddy. Come yeah. wait, wait. We're getting there. But this record has some lesser-known songs on it we need to discuss. First, a song called Mr. Greed. And second, (laughs) a song called Zanz Kant Danz. Z-A-N-Z-K-A-N-T-D-A-N-Z. Yes, and I remember that, and oh my gosh, I can't believe this is all coming together. (laughs) These songs are pretty obviously about Saul Zanz. In fact, if you buy any version of this record made after its initial 85 pressing, that song is not called Zans Can't Dance. It's called Vans Can't Dance because Saul Zance is not the type of guy to take something like that lying down. <laughs> he sues yeah. for defamation to the tune of, are you ready for this digit? $144 million. <laughs> <laughs> Claiming that Fogarty was making him out to be, quote, a thief, robber, adulterer, and murderer. And I gotta say, I've read the lyrics, and he kind of is. The two parties said a lot of court. But there's another song that you just mentioned on center field that causes a lot more trouble. And this time, it's not about the lyrics. It's about the music. Let's go back to your bedroom after your sister leaves. Let's pull out the record Cosmos Factory. Let's let's listen to Run Through the Jungle for just a second. Better 
you got any thoughts or feelings about that song? Man, it's such a great sounding song. I don't know. Like everything about it. The vocals really are terrific. There is another song that you already mentioned that shows up on Fogarty's Centerfield record. And it opens with this song. It's called The Old Man Down the Road. remember that John Fogarty doesn't own the rights to run through the jungle anymore. You remember who does? Fantasy Records? Yeah, Mr. Saul's aunt still owns the the rights to be playing that one. And so another lawsuit shows up that says I think I'm pretty convinced, this is Mr. Zantz speaking, I'm pretty convinced that Old Man Down the Road is just the same song with different words. Wow. And he claims that Mr. Fogarty plagiarized a song that isn't his, at least, yeah, not, if, at least not legally. Right. It was. It's his, but it's not really his. And, and that is how John Fogarty goes to federal district court in San Francisco in 1988 for writing a song that sounds too much like a song he wrote. Yes, I just said that out loud. Writing yeah. a song that sounds too much like a song he wrote. And is this does this get into the defense for him to be able to use that? Because it's a great argument. So court case is two weeks of stupidity, during which Fogarty has to break down on the stand that, yes, they sound similar because they're both based on a style that he refers to as swamp rock. Now, the jury actually likes this explanation. There's very little deliberation, and they say Zance doesn't have a case. So great. Fantastic. But, as we've already learned, Fogarty cannot stay out of the courtroom. And he's now pissed. Because his lawyer fees don't go away. Now, this may sound... At first, I was like, what? Now he's just picking a fight. But here's what I didn't understand. If Fantasy had won, Fogarty would have had to eat the fees. So he would have also had to pay their lawyer fees. But it doesn't work both ways. Right, yeah. Fogarty appeals this decision multiple times. It gets denied the first time. He eventually pushes it all the way to the Supreme Court. March of 1994, the Supreme Court rules in favor of John Fogarty. I knew he went to the Supreme Court. Oh, my gosh. All this context. Well, yeah, and what's great about the Supreme Court thing is that there's like actually a Supreme Court decision where... There's one of the justices is like, yeah, Creedence Clearwater Revival is a pretty good band. Like that's like in the in the decision that yeah. they just threw that in. Um, Universally liked, yeah. So with all this context, when we get back to Stu and Doug, you gotta wonder if Fogarty just got too comfortable in the courtroom, man. If that just doesn't become his default response, like PTSD triggered response to all conflict in his life. So his former bandmates call. He doesn't want to go out on tour with him. They call the act Credence Revisited. He sees it as an excuse to go back to the hallowed halls of justice. Uh, he, he gets a temporary injunction, but they get clear of it, and you and I end up giving away big piles of tickets to see that version of the band in casinos across the country by the mid-2000s. And remember those lawyers that Fogarty had to use to get his lawyer fees back? Yes. By the end of the 90s, he sues one of them. He just sues everybody, dude. He might sue us for making this episode. I don't know. But I will say one last funny anecdote 
uh, or actually two things, because I told you I was going to tell you the thing about Tom. So the Tom thing is sad. The other thing's funny. So th- I did read in a couple of places that at some point, Tom starts like picking a fight with John and saying that like he and Saul are friends and like Saul's in the right. And like, like which as you can tell from hearing this story and seeing it laid out, like is a real, even, even just to say it, even if it's not true, is like a really crappy thing to say. Right. Sure. Yeah. It, it's like telling Superman that Lex Luthor is your new best friend. Like right. this is the arch enemy. Right. And so at some point, Tom and then Tom dies fairly young so like he's out of the picture before this revisited stuff happens. Here's the more fun thing. What gets Fogarty back to playing his songs? Yeah, what is that? Because I, as I told you at the beginning of this, I saw him play at a festival or heard him play mostly at a festival and I was hearing all the CCR hits and it was just unbelievable and amazing and he still sounds so freaking good. So I mean I at a certain point he I think he realizes you, you give the people what they want. But one of the anecdotes I came across was that at one point he has a conversation with Bob Dylan. Wow. And Bob Dylan says to him, if you don't start playing those songs, people are going to think Proud Mary is a Tina Turner tune. Yeah. <laughs> Which I just think is an amazing quote yeah. from Bob Dylan. And, and as the story goes... That, you know, Fogarty finally, at least that, that sort of is the nail in the coffin that, that gets Fogarty to say, you know what? All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put these back on the set, um, regardless of who's getting paid for part of them or whatever. But, wow, I mean, it's, it's a head-spinning amount of legal drama. And, Chris, thanks for, for writing the, the letter. We always get the best ideas for the show, and we get them directly from you. Um, just do that at wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. You can check out the show and what uh, Murdoch and I are up to at wearethestoryguys.com, the site. All right, what should people keep doing until next time? Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.